What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Cola Cast. This podcast is a presentation of the Cola Corporation. The Cola Corporation is a streetwear brand that is based in Chicago, Illinois. My name is Cola. I am the artist and designer behind the brand. This episode is super special. This is the last of a three-part series on punk, dress, politics, and how those three things interact and overlap. Each episode in the series has focused on a different book. First, we did a review of Please Kill Me, and that book is about early U.S. proto-punk and punk. Second up in the series, we reviewed the book England's Dreaming, which is about English punk during the 1970s, specifically London punk. And now, to finish off the series, we are going to talk about the book We Are Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. This podcast differs from the previous two in the series in a number of ways, not the least of which is that in this episode, I have an interview with the author. Kevin Matson is the Connor Study Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University. He also sits on the editorial board of Descent Magazine. Kevin teaches U.S. cultural and intellectual history, including courses on 20th century ideas, cultural rebellion, popular culture, and film. Kevin's previous books include What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President, Jimmy Carter, America's Malaise, and The Speech That Should Have Changed the Country, Upton Sinclair and the Other American Century, Rebels All, A Short History of the Conservative Mind in Post-War America, and Just Plain Dick, Richard Nixon's Checkers Speech and the Rocking, Socking Election of 1952. Okay, I know it's tedious when podcast hosts apologize up front in an episode about the quality of the audio you are about to hear. Because you had one fucking job, man, as a podcast host. And that is the audio quality. Well, unfortunately, at this point, I have to make that apology to you. Kevin and I started off talking on Zoom. We got booted off Zoom. And we ended up just talking on (laughs) speakerphone, on my phone. And I was recording off of my laptop. And you're going to hear... A lot of background noise. You're going to hear footsteps from upstairs. You're going to hear traffic from outside. You're going to hear me rustling through notes, me rustling through pages of Kevin's book. You're going to hear what I think is me rubbing the stubble on my face. I have done my best to edit that stuff out and to boost the audio quality. And here's the thing. I do not want to get better at editing audio. I do not want to get better at audio engineering. I want to get better at designing. I want to get better at figuring out how to present ideas to people. I want to get better at working on how to be a more effective provocateur, if I do say so myself. I don't want to get better at the audio stuff, but at the same time, I want everything I do to be as good as it possibly can be. And this is where it would be awesome to work with someone who is good with recording, with Audacity or whatever audio program, and could leave the content to me. But that person is not in my life as of yet. And so, very much in the spirit of Kevin's book and the 1980s U.S. punks, the Cola cast, like everything in the world of Cola, is DIY. Or 
D-I-M. Dim. Do it myself. I'm not complaining. That's just where we're at. The interview is good. I had a great time talking to Kevin, and I hope you have a great time listening to it. Let me know what you think about the content. I already know that the quality of the audio is not great. I'm on Twitter at the Cola Corp, C-O-R-P, at the Cola Corp, on Twitter, on Instagram, at the Cola Corporation, and email is info at the ColaCorporation.com. And also, this book out of the three that I reviewed, I really, really enjoyed this. It's right in the wheelhouse of all things cola pop culture politics music the diy aesthetic it's all here in this book more than either of the previous two books we've talked about the book is we're not here to entertain punk rock ronald reagan and the real culture war of 1980s america you can find it at the oxford university press website www.oup.com or take a look at bookshop.org. All right. Thanks for listening. Here is the talk. I try to work and I keep thinking of World War III. I try to talk to girls and I keep thinking of World War III. At goddamn 6 o'clock news, make sure I keep thinking of World War III. I keep thinking of Russia, Russia. This guy asked a question, and it's a long question, but I think this is going to set up not only the stuff you talk about in the book, but the way you structure it. He says the 80s had a huge representation of punks in media, especially in genre flicks as violent street gangs that behaved without fear and had open disdain for any sort of rule or respect of anyone. How much of this media representation of punks was pure propaganda versus reflections of reality. In some ways, that was what first made me want to write this book, was because I remembered how poorly it was represented during the 80s, having come of age in the 80s, and then how those sorts of portrayals still seem to linger today. You know, and, and the notion that you would ever say, yeah, there, there, were, there were a lot of kids who were punks who were also pacifists, vegetarians, you know, on the left, um, clearly, they don't get any voice. And occasionally, like Sean Stern, who's the um, lead singer in California band Youth Brigade, there was a riot at a show. Most of these are police riots where police are basically trying to kick kids out of the building that they're, that they're at. TV News is basically does, decides to do like a four-parter, seven-part series, whatever it is. They actually do a really good job. They actually say, no, what, what's said about all these punk kids is right. I mean, you know, this is, they're more articulate. They're more intelligent. They're politically engaged, all that sort of stuff. And um, Sean Stern you, you used the show to get an interview in which he stated exactly that. So I think there was attempts sometimes to push back against it, but, you know, Punks probably didn't have the, uh, the technical equipment that you need to, to make something that could, you know, compare to a, a movie or to a television news show. One of the things that stuck out to me is you have this early onslaught of media misrepresenting punk culture as being violent. Oh, it was suburbia. I think it was suburbia. With the the movie that you talk about where there's like a scene of like a gang sexual assault and yeah. people just being beaten for no reason. Like somebody hits the floor and <laughs> people just attack them as opposed to what would actually happen in slam dancing. Where if you hit the floor, somebody's going to pick you up, right? Yeah, yeah. So it goes from these really just egregious media representations to 
As William asked, was it a matter of art or life imitating art, art imitating life? Well, the people who were the violent punks came later, and they were the right wing skins for Reagan. So you, and it reminds me so much of like all of the nonsense propagated by the act, the likes of Andy Ngo and Fox News of Antifa being this hyper violent shadowy organization we're at the real people bringing the violence or patriot front proud boys all of those so yeah <laughs> life imitated art but it was the right wing punks doing it yeah i mean a small point and it, but it i think it, it's maybe kind of important in the context of what we've been talking about um was that the only it seemed to be that what these shows that had these negative representations throughout seem to then attract kids into to go to a local show or to a scene and reenact what they saw on the television right that's what they thought punk was um because they had they had, it had never been revealed to them up until that point in time that they decided to dive into a scene for all the wrong reasons that's one place where you can see this sort of the, the art and art versus reality sort of thing is that for a lot of kids who you know I, I don't know what's motivating them, but, you know, they say, oh, look, it, look, class of 1984, here's all these rapist, you know, guys running the school. And then, you know, what they basically say is, let's do the same. Well, let's, let's do it ourselves. And that's where you, I think, see something of the relationship between the, the usual divide between art and reality. Yeah. And these kids were the Quincy punks or the, the punks. right, because yep. there was a show, Quincy, which was a detective show. There was an episode where Quincy had to deal with, like, a violent punk, right? Who killed someone, supposedly. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not just, like, maybe you go to a show and you go into the slam pit and you get hit in the head and you kind of are sore or whatever, but this is murder. <laughs> right, yeah. It's ludicrous. I mean, I really honestly say to people who ask, I'll usually say, I have never heard of an actual murder at a punk show. I've heard of violence, but that's like what you were saying. That's predominantly after you hit 1984 and go into 1985 when the skinheads sort of proliferate in, especially in San Francisco, um, but also in Los Angeles and certainly in Washington, D.C. I had firsthand experience witnessing the rise of these kinds of skins that were way late in terms of their engagement in the scene. Tell me about that, because you, you grew up in D.C., correct? Yeah. Okay, so in D.C., I mean, when I think of, like, 80s hardcore, you were there for this. Kind of, can you talk a little bit about that, about getting into the scene and then also this violence that came in? Yeah, I always point out, people always ask me, uh, did you see Henry Rollins, who was back then Henry Garfield, in his band SOA? And I said, no, you know, actually, it's funny, I came into the scene right at the moment that he decided to become the lead singer of Black Flag. So he was out of out of um, out of uh, D.C. So too were the Bad Brains. They they had gone to New York City to try to I think try to make it big. What brought me to to engage in the scene in the first place? I grew up in a town called Bethesda, Maryland, um, and at that point in time, it was it was a it was small fry suburb. It was not what it eventually became once you had a metro line coming into it, which was like I think a, a, a town that has like 365 restaurants. You know, just like yuppie yuppieism has has won in in Bethesda. Nonetheless, there were what were called sometimes B town punks, 
for Bethesda punks. And that was the circle of people that I got into. I think what attracted me at first was just feeling alienated from, from you know, going to high school and, and hearing the garbage that your teachers would sometimes espouse. I think some of it has to do with the fact that my parents divorced and I was meeting up with a lot of other kids who had similar experiences and who had kind of been, you know, hurt by, by their parents' divorce and a large load of mistrust, I think, in public institutions because of that. And it was just kids who were, they, they were smarter than most of the kids that I went to high school with. And sometimes we went to the same high school. They were more creative. They were into, um, you know, making music. And much of it, one of the things that I try to correct for in the book is like, you use the term hard. Hardcore. I try to stay away from hardcore because I think it's got connotations of just like, you know, thrash sort of music, which, which you know, really can't explain like a band like the Minutemen mm-hmm. who are writing very complex and much more engaging songs than, than, you know, the three chord thrash one minute and we're over with it sort of performances. So, I mean, there were kids that, you know, we would hang out in the basement of, of, of a drummer in a band and, you know, play music together and do that sort of stuff. And so I really kind of was drawn to the creativity. I think I was also drawn to what eventually I became um, later in life because I got a chance to write for zines. Um, and there was one in DC called If This Goes On that a friend of mine and his girlfriend put out. And it was like the first chance to write about something that I cared about, right? I mean, you always were writing in high school, especially in senior level, writing about stuff that was assigned to you. And this was a chance to actually write. And it, I found out, you know, I, writing can be fun. So too can be research. Um, I remember Jello Biafra and having seen the Dead Kennedys numerous times, you know, would always t- say to to participants at shows, hey, go out there and learn something on your own. You know, like look into like what the CIA is doing or look into, you know, what agribusiness is doing. Do some research because it's fun. And and I think that I, that's what punk opened to me was an ability to be inquisitive, to be creative, and to be eventually engaged in, in politics itself. DC in the early stages, it's a myth to think that it was always a political scene. It was really a lot of, um, much more of a kind of anti-political rhetoric that, that I remember from, from the early period of the 1980s. It gradually became much more engaged in politics and some sort of act, political action. you mentioned dc not political early on something i noticed in the book a lot of bands seem to want to distance themselves from sort of let's say overt politics like everything's political right the personal is political but it was the it seems like it was the zines that covered the music and that they went really deep into politics and there were explicitly political bands mdc maybe is is an example of that but can you talk about that kind of relationship or symbiosis or how these things played off each other's guys making the music who in a lot of instances really didn't want to make political statements or endorsements but then you had the zines that just went hard into like some really philosophical really sort of like political science oriented essays in their stuff i think that's an interesting dynamic 
Yeah, I, and I mean, NBC is a good case, and I, I put it alongside of Maximum Rock and Roll. But with NBC, I think, and I write about this in the book, it sounded like you were getting propaganda. Uh, you were getting stuff that, you know, could only be described as being kind of like hammered in the head with the message. And there's a debate that the band has with others who's basically say, like what you just said, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't really want to be that kind of political. I, I want to express my anxiety and my angst about the times we're living in, for sure. But I don't want to necessarily have to have a political message for people. Let people decide themselves what they want to, you know, what they what they take away from it. There was a, a fear that no matter if you if you started to proselytize to people, that they would like basically say, screw this, we're out of here. I don't want to be preached at. I organized a show MDC played at. So I, I, I kind of like their politics, but I found it to be like utterly too aggressive, you know. But I mean, there was this sort of muscle head sort of feeling to especially Dave Dichter, who who was the singer and I think probably one most of the lyrics. But it, it, there was a kind of shying away from being pedantic, from being, you know, here's what you should do, here's what you should believe, this is wrong, this is wrong. And w- at one point in time, someone said to Dave Dichter, well, I want to sing about my emotions. And he says, well, my emotions are that I think that, you know, corporate food is, is an ugly thing and I, I don't want to be made to eat it. And I was like, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, right. It's not a bad defense, but I think in general, there was a real, because it's such an anti-authoritarian movement, there's always that fear that we could become the new authoritarians by telling people what to believe. And so you have this kind of tension that I think runs throughout the music and the zines um, where people are saying, you know, I believe X, Y, and Z, but you don't have to, which is not necessarily the best message if you want to get people involved in a political movement. But I think it was, I think it was, honestly stated i think people felt like we don't have all the answers we shouldn't scream at the top of our lungs about you know dead cops uh you know should have been shot or whatever that stuff i think turned off a lot of people and i think there was again a little bit more of a sophistication to the movement than most people account for the zines are crucial i mean i think that they're they're a historian's wet dream because i mean you've got stuff that's dated usually relatively closely you've got people identifying themselves at the, the location where the zine is made and then you've got the zines themselves and they're just they're rich you know you're right i think the zines allowed for people to have a kind of complex view sometimes veering into political philosophy again it's maximum rock and roll that i think does this the most and of course the, the publisher of maximum rock and roll tim yohannan is often described as someone who's overly dogmatic uh, a crude Marxist and stuff like that, but they had other people like one of the kind of subtle heroes of the book who actually I, I reached to, to interview Jeffrey Bale. He's basically writing these like long articles with like bibliographies to them. And they're all about, you know, American politics and foreign policy and stuff like that. And they were quite sophisticated. He might've had the advantage that he was a little bit older than some of the uh, younger uh, recruits into the scene. But um, I think there was a lot more intelligence behind this stuff than than people usually pay attention to. Well, I think a lot of times with the overtly dogmatic stuff, it can, at some points, (laughs) it kind of strikes me the same way as Christian rock. It's just, (laughs) it's like, oh man, come on. And Propagandi has a few tracks that are just bangers. They're great. And then, but so much of their stuff is so, it, it is, it's preaching, right? It like literally yeah. is preaching and it's just um, stodgy in a way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's a debate that, that bands have amongst themselves. I remember, I think it was, so there was a band called the Clip Boys, which is like a great name for a, <laughs> a male band. Supposedly they had the reputation where they would go out 
and um, say, okay, this song is about X, Y, and Z, and then they would play the song. And people were like, well, that's not allowing people to think for themselves and, you know, to, to make, make meaning in their own lives and, and relating it to them uh, in their own way. Um, and I think that that sort of debate is, you know, it's an age-old debate, you know, should art be seen as propaganda or should art be engaged in political change or should art be art and let it stand as it on its own. And I think that there is a really interesting debate going on. And one of the things that a lot of San Francisco bands practiced and, and my own band in DC started to take this up, influenced by the San Francisco peace punks, they would hand out lyric sheets because they wanted to be clear to people what they were saying. Because after all, if you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you probably people are picking out every third word. They were just, you know, songs that had interesting, engaging lyrics very often. And they wanted to make sure that people heard them rather than, you know, just say, oh, the, screw you, get on with the music. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's these debates are really rich within this movement. The threat of becoming a propagandist, the threat of becoming a new form of authoritarian leader, telling people what they should believe, that runs through um, the, the story. You don't care about a nuclear war How many people die You're always laughing in the face of death I look you straight in the eye And say, I hope you get drafted I hope you burn and die You a political asshole Hope you're the first to cry When you think about punk and, you know, your own experience and a band and everything, like, where do you sort of land on that side of the discussion? Oh, I mean, I, I remember first seeing a concert where MDC played and was kind of taken aback at the aggressiveness of what they were saying and, you know, kind of not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with them, but just the style that they presented was just so rough and so kind of aggro that I, I, I found myself being kind of put off. Some of this, I think, is, you know, the kind of critique of masculinity. It's off-putting. You're escaping, you're trying to get away from that kind of macho culture. Um, that's what I think the, the um, straight-edge movement was all about, was, you know, saying not that we're opposed to sex, but that we're opposed to the belt-notching type of sex that, you know, fraternity boys are having. Right. Um, I, I guess I just found myself kind of... Um, like like a lot of people did a little bit put off I, i'm not i don't want to rag on them all the time but i mean there was a feeling that this was this was this this lacked in complexity i think i compare mdc in the book to another band who i think had much more complexity to what they were doing and they were but they were a political band but they just didn't let the message get in the way of their own artistic expression it, what was that band code of honor code of honor okay they were a San Francisco-based band that came out of two bands that then, a band that was called Sleeping Dogs, and they actually were one of the few American bands that produced a, an album or it's maybe a seven-inch uh, by Crass from England. Again, very political. Yeah, right. And honestly, like Crass, you know, even if you don't like like overt, you know, political statements or whatever, I mean, they lived it. This was not. Yeah. This was not like a posture for them. Like. They live communally. They, you know, they made their own artwork. Their artwork is still fantastic. That Xerox style they did. One of the things that's frustrating for me with the whole, people ask me a lot of times like, well, what did you intend with this? What did you intend with this image? And so for these musicians, I sympathize with them. Like they're making anti-establishment expressions and, but people still need them to kind of like spell it out and be explicit and overt 
And that just seems to be almost part of human nature to need that kind of clarity. But I still find that really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the issue of, of intent is one that I always tell students that I teach in cultural history classes, you know, stay away from it. Because it's very often not the intent that matters so much. It's the way it's received and people putting it into practice in their own worlds and their own you know, belief systems and stuff like that. I would agree with you. I think the one of the things that you talked about just earlier, I don't know if you've ever read anything by like Situations International folks in France. They had this term detournement, which meant that you could deface advertisements and you had to deface advertisements to create their own meaning, their real meaning. You know, and so there was this kind of defacement of advertising, but also trying to play around with the, you know, how you can shift the meaning direction, I should say, that you want to go in. And I remember being very deeply influenced by that stuff and changing advertisements, which this is still a period of time in which billboards are much more prevalent, um, was something that gave a lot of young punk kids a great deal of joy. I won't say that I was included in that group, but, um, um, well, I really was. But uh, (laughs) I mean, that's sort of like saying, yeah, you may want us to believe that, you know, smoking a certain brand of cigarettes is going to mean freedom. But what we see is that you're just peddling lung cancer, you know, and, and changing things around. That, I think, was an act of creativity that had a politics behind it, but also was just, it was funny. And I still think that one of the best artists, um, you know, late 20th century, really was a part of this movement, and that's Raymond Pettibone, who's gone on to have a really pretty successful career as an artist. He was always great at, like, you know, depicting something and then having, like, some sort of set of words at the, at the bottom of the picture. And it, I think that, again, is a, a type of artwork that wants to provoke people but doesn't want to necessarily fill in all the blanks for them and tell them what to believe. If you can track it down, there's a great depiction he has of Elvis Presley, nailed to a cross like Jesus Christ, and it, and it says below that, you didn't love him enough. <laughs> <laughs> See, I mean, it's just it's stuff like that. But it's, I mean, it's just honestly funny. California, Oberalis, California, One of the things that I think you do a really good job pointing out in the book, in the United States, what folks consider like democracy or freedom of choice is really the ability to choose among consumer options. But that's something that really comes out in the book as you talk about sort of the material culture, the consumer culture of the 80s. Was, so in your opinion, was the punk, U.S. punk in the 80s, was it like a reaction against that or was it something happening in parallel to it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was in, in direct relationship to one another. I mean, I, I point out that, you know, Reagan's first inaugural inauguration costs like whopping amounts of money beyond what was usually expected of, of what uh, an operation would, would cost. I think that there, there's this kind of garishness of Ronald Reagan, his kind of silly celebration of, of celebrities, um, which are, of course, core to a consumer society. Events like watching Reagan parade Michael Jackson out onto the 
White House grounds and say, you know, what a, what a thriller it is to have this guy here and yeah. so successful as an artist. And it's just like, that's everything that, that, that punks were turning their backs against. With celebrity culture, you know, you have people like Lee Ving from uh, yeah. Fear, who, yep. and I think in the book you kind of maybe intimate that this guy really wanted to be a star. Is that fair to say? Yep. And Henry Rollins specifically talked about it. You quote him in the book, he says something like, nobody goes up to a steel worker and asks them for an autograph, but people do it to me all the time, and it, I don't like this. How? So this is an interesting thing about punk, this thing, this anti-celebrity culture, but it's still existing in this capitalist society that is more than happy to sell you as a punk band, but it's gonna sell you. <laughs> and if you flirt with it, if you get into bed with MTV, as even the Minutemen did, right, you, it will consume you. And so, like, was, was this something in the punk movement of people, like, actively fighting against becoming celebrities? Oh, sure. When, when Meyer Thread, you know, broke up and then reunited, that accusation was made in, in local DC scene reports that, you know, this was them trying to get famous, trying to make you know, the fact that they were going on tour kind of added to it. There was always that fear that, you know, just be very militant about rejecting anything that's, that smacks of celebrityhood or that puts you on a pedestal that you don't really deserve. I think the people that I, I find to be the funniest case of that in the book is the band Husker Du. Um, they start off in 79, 80, and they, they're interviewed by a, a college newspaper, I think it is, and, and they basically say, we will never do what The Clash did, was sell out to CBS because you lose total control over your work. And they, and they keep, they, for, for the next three years, they keep saying that. And then, bingo, we get to 1985, and they're signing a contract with Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and the, to add to the irony is that all the things that they said that big companies do to recording artists, mostly telling them you know what they should, how they should sound and stuff like that, it happens to Husker Du once they sell out um, or and sell to Warner Brothers. I mean, they, they, re, they repeat the errors that had been made before them. So, yeah, I think that distrust and celebrityhood, that's something I really, really like. I think the, the music writer that articulated that most clearly but um, is Lester Bangs, who basically says, mm. these are human beings, these celebrities. They're human beings. They have the same foibles, same strengths as we have, and we should treat them like human beings rather than a celebrity. And I always thought that that was the right thing, and I think that there was an attempt certainly during the 1980s to reject celebrityhood on the part of young punks. As I'm going through my notes here, first of all, I just want to point out that you're talking about Republican National Convention in Dallas and uh, the Dead Kennedys. The Dead Kennedys are there performing, which, of course, given their name, is a little bit uh, interesting. You, there's a line in here about a, an action that takes place. The cops come in. It's at a department store. Neiman Marcus. Okay, Neiman Marcus. And kids kind of like descend on it. And there's a line in here. Riot cops were called in to protect the perfume counter. <laughs> and I think that is such a wonderful summation of the role of policing in America <laughs> in terms of what interests they protect. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a hell of a lot of anti-cop stuff during the 1980s. I think that a lot of us associate that with the with 90s and you know hip hop and stuff like that or late 80s into the 90s but i mean throughout especially i find amongst la punks where the lapd was just so 
over the top in terms of its violence and was creating constantly these, you know, turning shows into like riots of kids having to run away from the cops because they're afraid they're going to be who are on horses with their batons worried that they're going to get their heads cracked in. I mean, I think that there was a deep awareness of, you know, uh, of the abuse of, politi- of police power that, that, that existed in America. The knowledge of the kind of historical precedent of what, you know, the civil rights movement had to endure during the 50s and 60s in, in America, um, and, a, and a real distrust of political authority and, and police authority. I know, I know you're not an L.A. guy, but I'm curious, because you mentioned how sort of the LAPD had a, like a war going on against Black Flag. What is it about cops in L.A. between over-the-top LAPD and today with the LASD? I mean, they have 18 street gangs inside the sheriff's department. Do you have any clue, having been through sort of punk culture and the antagonism with the LAPD, like what is with Los Angeles? And then plus... Orange County, which you talk about in the book, right, which is incredibly reactionary. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Probably one word would be Daryl Gates, that the leadership of the LAPD was the person who was most responsive, responsible for militarizing the cops. But, I mean, I think that there was a vision of what police power should be that's espoused by Daryl Gates, who had a long, you know, tenure in, in, his, in his heading off the LAPD. I remember taking our kid to Ferguson, because he wanted to go to, to participate in, in the uh, in the actions there. You know, it was very clear how the, the military, I mean, the police were so militarized and that there was a real gulf between, you know, the people being policed and the people who were doing the policing. Kind of like a warlike mentality that you get. But as to why exactly in L.A., I, I don't know. I'm not sure. There's probably people who do know that better than I do. This might be reaching a little bit. Hollywood, right? Which just the word Hollywood yeah. is a shorthand, not just for Hollywood, California, but stars, celebrity, dreams, which of course was extremely important to Ronald Reagan. The way that you talk about the link between sort of celebrity and power in the book, maybe it makes sense that the police there would be so hyper aggressive because it, they're linked directly to this culture of consumption and of celebrity that they're meant to protect and uphold. I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I, and I think that, you know, I think there was this sort of feeling that probably some of the LA cops brought with them was like, these kids are basically saying, we don't want the, you know, marketed consumer shit that you're trying to force us to, to, to play to. We don't care about the, who's the goddamn celebrity. You know, we reject all this consumer culture and stuff like that. And that probably added to the aggravation because, you know, if you're a working class LAPD guy, these are kids who are rejecting all the things that you probably wanted to have in your own life. Um, and I think that's a, that's something that you see kind of repeated throughout, especially you see that in the, in the late 1960s where, you know, working class white cops, you know, are, are more than happy to beat the shit out of protesters because they see these people as, as not one of them. Um, I think that there's, I think there's, uh, but I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. This podcast is the third in a series in the second episode that I did in this series, focused on the book England's Dreaming. Of course, English punk, you can't talk about it without talking about Malcolm McLaren. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what you think of the criticism of UK punk. How much of it do you think was a vehicle of McLaren trying to make money selling clothes through sex? Because that was part of it for sure. But when you think of the Sex Pistols, do you see them as just sort of a boy band that he used to sell stuff? Or is it more complex than that? 
I think it's more complex than that. I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I, I still admire the Sex Pistols and their, and their one album. I mean, I think it, you know, I, I don't think it's amazing or anything like that. I don't think it's ultra new as some people try to portray it as. But I mean, there's, there's you know, God Save the Queen is just a marvelous song. And I think that basically going to the Jubilee and trying to disrupt it, I think that's the serious side of the Sex Pistols and McLaren. There was a great interview that he did in, um, LA punk magazine that came out he gets this interview where he basically says it's not revolutionary to do x y and z what would be revolutionary is if all these young kids came onto the stage and he's obviously foreshadowing San Francisco where they'll where the sex festivals will play their last show he's like kids could get on the stage and rip the rip the instruments out of the star's hands and play their own music that that would be true DIY I mean I think that he's probably serious about that and I think there's something to be said for it on the other hand you know when you look at what he does after the Sex Pistols, you know, disband, it's much more of the kind of, I mean, the, the movie that's, that's made out of it is just one of the ones that, you know, I think is, is makes it clear that, that McLaren had his eye on the cash register as much as on some sort of philosophy of do-it-yourself or youth rebellion or anything like that. And literally, I mean, the, the a cash register figures into the <laughs> sort of like a montage in that movie, doesn't it? Yeah, keeps going up. Right. The price of this money keeps going up. Yeah, I think at that point in time, they 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 probably lost track of what at least in '77 punk seemed to be about. Dreaming, a lot of that book talks explicitly about fashion and about yeah. style. Even The Clash, with their jumpsuits, with the Jackson Pollock splatter. In your book, it really doesn't come up, like this idea of dress as statement. There are a few passages where folks talk about being like anti-fashion. I mentioned this to you in my email. Even If something's anti-fashion, that entails a style, right? <laughs> if you're anti-fashion, you're going to dress in a certain way. So could you talk a little bit about that with 1980s U.S. punk? Was dress important, and what was it? Yeah, I, before I jump it up to the 80s, I would point out that I, I'm a firm believer that Richard Hell in, yeah. in New York City was basically doing what becomes known as the kind of punk fashion scene, the safety pins, um, the cut spiky hair. He's doing that, and supposedly McLaren wanted to take Richard Hell to England and to try to make him, you know, fit into that scene or what have you. Few people realize that Richard Richard Hell really was a, I wouldn't say a great poet, but was a fine poet, and he seemed to care about poetry more than he cared about his image, or at least that's the way he remembers it in his autobiography. But up to the 80s, you know, I, I think that most of the kids who were involved in the scene were probably buying their clothes at thrift stores, and so they were probably unknowingly reproducing the culture of uh, the 1970s and disco wear. I remember there were these polyester shirts that clearly disco dancers had been wearing in the late 70s that you would pay five cents to get. It was functional though, right? I mean, you, you had clothing that just basically was clothing. 
it didn't have a statement behind it other than perhaps that you really didn't care about it and that it wasn't a key part of what it was that you wanted to, to act upon. And I think that, you know, sometimes people will say that a lot of the young punks in the late 70s, early 80s have a critique of the poser, as it's called. And I think that's someone who's basically dresses like a normal human being during the day or, you know, business suit or what have you. And then at night sprays a little bit of purple in their hair and dances around to new wave songs. That was something that I think, again, there was a suspicion of the superficiality of fashion and of like changing your identity through your clothing or whatever it is. The funniest story about this is, is a personal one. My mom, who was a single mom, raised me um, since my dad left when I was about 10. She'd get these calls from friends. Aren't you worried about Kevin? He's like dressing in like these like ridiculous looking clothing and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, his, his hair's all cut. and it's, It looks really ugly and stuff like that. And my mom said to them, I'm relieved by this. You want to know why? Because he doesn't buy new clothes. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it was just, you know, you went to the trash to get your clothing and to the past to get your clothing, but you didn't really think about it or think that it made a necessary statement um, other than perhaps you weren't a preppy. I always imagine 1980s U.S. punk uniforms being like, T-shirt, black jeans, and like Vans. Maybe combat boots. Those were prevalent. But yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I, I the lead singer of Government Issue was someone who I admired. He actually passed away in the last uh, must have last six years or so. He wore the most outlandish clothing, as did Jack Grisham of TSOL. He used to basically he's a drag queen, but he was like a super muscular surfer guy at the same time, and it was like this binary opposition of his personality of the tough guy ready to take on the cops. Versus the guy who like was wearing women's clothing and freaking out the young men in the audience. <laughs> I mean, there was that real feeling that that was transgression. I, I followed the John Stab of Government Issue lead, which is get the ugliest clothes you can imagine. Probably again a polyester disco shirt, striped pants that you straighten, maybe kids combat boots rather than than a new eyes on shirt. And you have this with stage diving, the idea that the performers and the audience are the same people. They're peers. Yeah. There's a peer yeah. relationship. So you're not going to dress like a star, right? But you know, the guys you mentioned who wore garish outfits, like it seems like what you're saying, another part of this was it, he probably wore that at noon, walking down the street. He, he didn't just put it on to perform, I would imagine, right? There's stories in Please Kill Me about Iggy stumbling down Sunset Boulevard wearing like a tutu, like a, a real tutu, <laughs> you know? That's what he wore. So he did outlandish things on stage, smearing himself in peanut butter and raw meat and wearing whatever he wore, glitter. But he also did that on the street in his everyday life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd say of any of the people that some punk kids went to look for, you know, inspiration from, it would include the MC5 and Iggy. I mean, I think that they were seen as people who were serious about their music and trying to retain control, except when, of course, they sign with major labels and get screwed over the process of it. I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's the willingness to, to wear, this, wear these clothes 24-7 and, you know, knowing that you're probably aggravating people or expressing yourself in such a way that some people might find off-putting. Ideally, get that person to engage in a conversation with you about what you really actually believe in. Sometimes I think of old friends, but they all seem the same. Then I see them and they can't remember my name. I guess I'm just like them, I guess I'm just a bore. I can hate them, but I've never done that before. I got some for good friends I don't want anymore. Sometimes I 
Yeah, and this is one of the things, one of the kind of mottos that I have for what I do is provocation is a public service. And you you talk in here about several times, like the idea of provocation, not preaching. And I think that the person that I knew his work before, Raymond Pettibone, I think that's the genius of his art is that it provokes people to think and it throws people off with the idea that they can still make sense of it themselves. But yeah, I, I yeah, provocation is the goal um, rather than preaching. Ralph Waldo Emerson saying something along those lines that provocation is the only way that he can teach someone anything. And I, you know, I mean, I don't want to say that I, I do performances in my college classes, but I'm, I think I'm probably fairly well known for being someone who assigns material that kind of sometimes throws people off. Mm -hmm. um, and by the end of our class discussions about the material, you know, the students are like, oh, yeah, okay, this makes sense. Or I, I may not agree with it, but yeah, I get what this person was trying to do and how people saw meaning in it. So, you know, I mean, I, I've always thought that, that provocation is like the highest um, and, and best act that the person can engage in. So we have a couple more uh, Twitter questions. And this brings up something that is in your book and that is certainly something that's come up a lot recently with like, Johnny Rotten wearing MAGA stuff and whatever's going on with him. And this comes from uh, our friend Corn Communist <laughs> who asks, why and how do you think any punks in the U.S., particularly New York hardcore, were or became conservatives? The thing that runs throughout a lot of New York punk politics, which is pretty dreadful. I mean, there's, there's, there's some good bands that I'd encourage people to listen to and realize that they were New York City bands as much as like the Cro-Mags were. Um, would be like Reagan Youth, Heart Attack, the band Heart Attack and Reagan Youth. I think they were both intelligent, politically engaged, and played relatively good music. So, I mean, I think that it's not like the scene gets taken over by a bunch of like crazy asses like the Cro-Max and stuff like that. But I think what runs through a lot of the 80s stuff in New York City, and this, it, this is also it can be spotted elsewhere, is a kind of homophobia. You know, and I think that a lot of the a lot of the kids who were insecure about their own sexuality were very often taken in by these kind of rough, tough guys. What what uh, lead singer Partek calls something like concrete head people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think that to a certain extent, it's like New York City had had its moment in the sun. You know, and 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 that was probably the seventies and CBGBs. And I think that there was a, I think there was actually much more of a rejection of New York City as being the place to go to, you know, find what punk was. But I think as far as like why exactly these people went conservative, I, I can't explain it. I mean, honestly, I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's like asking me, you know, what do you think about someone becoming a fascist? There's nothing really to be said at that point in time. If they're going to be a, a fascist, then we're probably going to have to fight them. I do think, though, that, you know, Reagan's second uh, inauguration and second terms of his administration suggest something about how there was a kind of giving up on political change. I think that there's something to be said for, like, this kind of doom and gloom once Reagan's reelected that really depoliticizes the scenes and that allows a kind of opening of people who are kind of Reaganites, right, in their yeah. own sort of weird way to kind of come into the scene and, and, and take over. The one other Twitter question I had was someone just asked kind of a straightforward question, but there might be 
some interesting context behind it is how did the Reagan youth get their name? Are you aware of that? Uh, I think it's a play upon, you know, fascist style slogans, right? Um, Reagan youth being Hitler youth um, for them. And I think that they played at Reagan probably with Hitler. But the lead singer of Reagan youth who has a tragic end to his life that I won't get into here uh, is basically, uh, he's Jewish. Um, but I, as I understand it, that's how they got their, their name. They were one of those bands who like formed, I think it was in Queens in high school. When I organized the Rock Against Racism, and I had Reagan Youth play at it you know, on, on, the, on the National Mall. He said, he was talking to me and I admired him. You know, I probably had a sort of like youngish sort of, you know, attachment to him. And he all of a sudden said to me, uh, like he me a friend of mine, this is a guy named Vinny. And I was like, Vinny, are you an agnostic front? Again, back to it, like, Dave, how the fuck can you hang out with a guy like this, right? Because I mean, this guy's everything that you would hate in terms of their belief system, somehow or other. I guess they made it work, so to speak. I did not realize that you organized RAR on the mall. Yeah, I mean, basically that started off back in the 60s and into the 70s as a legalized pot sort of thing. And then the Yippies held on to it. And I remember very well going to one Rock Against Reagan before the one that I helped to organize. They, they had these trash bags full of, of, of marijuana joints and they were throwing them into the audience, like thinking, okay, everybody's gonna get high. And all these punk kids are like throwing them on the ground and stamping on it. <laughs> from California and former congressional candidate Steve on Twitter has asked, was there, we talked about crass, I think they would certainly be part of this, but he asked, was there ever a cohesive anarchist movement in punk or a more general left-wing movement? I would say anarchist movement, I think um, most definitely. I mean, that was the, if there's any political philosophy that young people were interested in, it would have been anarchism. And they, that's expressed by a lot of participants, that they were really intrigued by the idea of anarchism. It came, I think, directly out of the ethic of do-it-yourself in terms of how you make and produce and, and circulate your music. Um, I think it was a, a kind of view of society being more decentralized. You know, usually people think of anarchists as being bomb throwers right. uh, and little more. But again, what I found generally was that there was a kind of an endorsement of anarchism on the part of a lot of these young punks. In some ways, I think to, to, to stay away from what would be perceived as authoritarian leftism, this is a period of time in which the Revolutionary Communist Party was trying to recruit young punks into their ranks, and they were, of course, malice. Most of the punks didn't want to have much to do with them. I think they like, had a rejection of Stalinism, of authoritarianism on the left. Anarchism was the thing that replaced that. A lot of kids read Kropotkin, read Emma Goldman, read these anarchist thinkers, 
but I think in the end it was seen as kind of a, a nice but impossible dream. Be realistic, demand the impossible. That was one of the slogans Malcolm McLaren put on his clothing, t- taken from the situation as international. But in any case, I think that, yeah, anarchism is the political philosophy, if there is one, that defined punk in the 80s. You talk about zines, and anarchism sort of helped the zine self-regulate, just in terms of setting up a network, supporting each other. Zines would list a directory of other zines, how you could get them, exchanges. That kind of spirit creates what Reagan, right, you mentioned this in the book, calls an underground economy, which he hated because it couldn't be taxed, I assume. Yeah, that's right. So I think that that's a great example of how anarchism informed everyday relations between these folks and these communities. You know, it wasn't strictly just something on paper or something conceptual to sit around and talk about. Although you do talk about how, especially with like the Maximum Rock and Roll guys, when they would entertain uh, bands, they would sit up into the wee hours of the morning talking about ideas. I came to my own identity as an intellectual, to unfortunately use a pretentious sounding word, from the readings and discussions that I had when I was involved in the punk scene and, and the readings and writings that I found in zines especially. I came to ideas via that via the scenes, the, the scene that I was involved in. And I think that that's, that's what, what Maximum Rock and Roll is describing. It's like, you know, getting excited about talking about big ideas and, you know, political philosophy or, you know, what's the meaning of protest or, you know, what's, what's, who's the best band out there right now. That sort of conversation, I think, was really to, to the making of the, of the movement. And I'd go so far as to say that it was something of a movement. Jessica on Twitter, she wants to hear about uh, food culture <laughs> in 80s punk. She asked, what what was the 80s punk diet? And were, was there any socio-political intersection? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question. I can't tell you what the, the diet um, of punks were. I mean, although there's all sorts of songs, I drink milk, I drink milk, I drink milk. I mean, there's allusions to food consumption in a lot of this stuff. But really, I think that probably the... The thing that, that comes out of this long term in food culture is what's basically happening, especially in San Francisco, which is a direct call for, for vegetarianism. And back to MDC, they released, you know, they were millions of dead cops, and then they released an album in which they were called Millions of Dead Chickens. And it was a kind of critique of corporatized food production at the same time as it was a kind of endorsement of vegetarianism, maybe even veganism on their part. I remember thinking that. And I, I became a vegetarian. I got into vegetarianism. Crass was really behind a lot of this stuff yeah. as well. And I, I got kind of turned on to it because what it said to me was that people are so un, so unaware of how their food is made. There's such a distance between the consumer of food and the maker of food. And that if the consumer was actually told to, that he was going to have to kill his own you know, animal for consumption, he couldn't do it. 
right? And that, that there was a kind of hypocrisy in terms of mediating and stuff like that. I think that comes out in certain circles, but I remember myself being a vegetarian and being laughed at by other punks who then eventually wound up becoming vegetarians. So yeah, I mean, I think there is, there's, there's thinking about food. There's thinking about, you know, things like straight edge, you know, like being responsible for the things that you consume and the way you consume them. All that sort of stuff, I think, had a kind of thoughtfulness to it. Although it also had, I think, significant limitations, you know, because it became purely personal and people could turn their backs on, you know, broader social and political change and just kind of say, oh, if my life is lived to the principles that I believe in, that's enough, which I think, you know, most of us would say, no, that's not enough. But yeah, there was definitely a connection there. With straight edge in general, there seems to be kind of like, it, I think this is true of any, any community. There's always going to be this like puritanical element yeah. where CM Punk is a straight edge wrestler. On Twitter, someone asked him, like, why do you drink caffeine? It's a, it's a drug. How do you consider yourself straight edge when you're like ingesting a drug? And he was very dismissive and insulting towards this person. But, you know, I mean, seems like a legitimate question, right? If you're going to say, I don't do drugs, and then you drink caffeine. like So, like, where does... And this is one of the hard things about taking a hard stand and saying, like, I'm a representative of this culture, because you open yourself up to all of that. And I wonder if that's also one of the reasons why so many of these musicians were hesitant to take that kind of hard stand and say, yes, I'm socialist, yes, I'm Marxist, or whatever. There's a story in the book about Jeff Bale deciding that he no longer wants to um, uh, be an editor at Maximum Rock and Roll and wants to go on to, uh, into academia, which he does, um, and pretty successfully. One of the things that he said is, I I'm tired of telling people what they have to do. Um, that's just getting exhausting. And I want to give people more slack than we've been giving them in the past. And, you know, if a band decides that they want to try to get a, a contract, I don't think that that makes them bad people, right? You just get the sense that there's an exhaustion that's built into this kind of, you know, politics of everything, everything matters. And you have to think, you know, the, the next step you take, what, what sort of action are you, are you embracing by doing so? Or like you said, just because people say, you're, you you depicted a, a person, that means that you necessarily endorse that person's politics. I think that there's a growing awareness that, you know, there's something both nice about it, but also limiting, which is a lot of the people were adolescents and they were burning hard and they wanted to, you know, they were, they had a fiery sort of orientation to the world that can burn out, you know, and I think that ending the story in about 85, when Husker do um, signs to Warners, it's also taking note of, of Jeff Bale's, you know, argument that there's a kind of puritanical, overly self-policing sort of tendency that, that he's just found exhausting and that he doesn't really want to have much to do with. Now, he says he goes, you know, goes to shows and listens to the music and stuff like that. It's just that he didn't think any longer that you could remake your life and, and um, you know, change things for the better. And you mentioned that these were a lot of punks were adolescent kids. And... Yep. So with the 70s punk in the U.S., you know, I mentioned this idea of putting the street on the stage. It seems like in the 80s, it's almost like putting the suburbs on the stage. You talk about, in the book, a lot of these kids were suburban kids. I mean, just talk to me about that, this idea of really kind of politically engaged kids coming from the suburbs. I, I wonder if that's kind of a surprising place for, for a movement of dissatisfaction to come from, considering that... I don't know, I would imagine most of them had somewhat comfortable middle-class lives. They did. They did, which they were, I think, rejecting 
themselves some of the privileges that they were aware that they were born into. And to me, that just seems an interesting kind of development as opposed to, um, I don't know, you know, like the clash, like squatting in abandoned buildings in London, right? And that these kids from the suburbs felt like alienated from what was going on, even though they weren't squatting. There's a funny story in the book about how the one of the better zines that comes out is a zine called Ripper. The zine is formed in a collective set of, com- of, of conversations that that are actually at a shopping mall um, because it was the only place that they could find any sort of any sort of public space to talk with one another. And so they go to a coffee shop that's in a in a shopping mall. And the first issue, the first political issue that they're most concerned with is Reagan's decision to basically make selective service a reality, and that is the preparation for a future draft. Reagan ran against that in, in his run against Jimmy Carter. He said it because of its rejection of libertarianism and people's right to choose. But once he's actually told, we can fight better wars in Central America and places like that if you have a selective service system set up, he changes his mind. He does what we call flip-flops. And the, the editors at Ripper said that they met a lot of young suburban kids who are scared shitless by this news? Some of them are, are deciding not to sign up, not to not to sign on to the pro, to the program. But I mean, the, the, it felt like there was a kind of march towards war already in the first in the first years of Reagan's administration. You add to that, you know, nuclear confrontation and the possibilities there, and there's just this anxiety. And I think that you know, there, anxiety and and alienation can take place maybe even more so in a suburban setting than it can in, say, an urban setting, the way that the 1970s punk stuff was all about. And it was just, you know, it was also just a reflection of reality. The, the numbers of Americans living in suburbs versus living in ur- urban areas is, is swiftly going up and up and up. Um, and it's, it was a moment when it felt like suburbia was, you know, mode of existence for a, a traditional nuclear family. You know, I think a lot of kids found it to be quite, you know, dull, not providing them with the excitement that they wanted to have. Well, thank you so much out of the three books that I reviewed. Well, I think Please Kill Me is kind of its own beast because it's an oral history. So it's just, there's no exposition in it whatsoever. That's what I, I, I mean, as much as I admire the book, I, I'm really hesitant to use oral history. Um, if I've got a zine that's published and it says when it was published at the time, I'll go to that. But when I talk to people about their memories, man. <laughs> right. I had too many interviews with people where basically they just self-aggrandize, right? They could tell you that they were so important, even though they weren't recognized at the time. People have their own desires to, to push conversations and understandings in a certain direction. I consciously avoided oral histories unless I could not get at a source that told me what I wanted, what I was trying to get at. And then I'd break down and, and call someone on the phone. But there's very few interviews that were done for the book.